Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. In 1981, the Milton S. Eisenhower Foundation was created to continue the work of the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders. Our speaker has been at the helm since its inception and has authored or co-authored reports on the 25th, the 30th, the 40th, and now the 50th anniversary of the original report. This most recent report, released in February 2018, concluded that America has made relatively little progress in reducing poverty, inequality, and racial injustice. Dr. Curtis joins us today to explain these findings outlined in the book, Healing Our Divided Society, the Eisenhower Foundation's reexamination of the work still necessary to meet the goals of the Kerner Report now 50 years later. Before joining the Eisenhower Foundation, Dr. Curtis was the executive director of President Carter's Interagency Urban and Regional Policy Group and served as co-director of the Crimes of Violence Task Force of President Johnson's National Commission on the Causes and Prevention of Violence. He is the author, co-author, and editor of 14 books and foundation reports. Dr. Curtis holds an A.B. in economics from Harvard University, a Master of Science in economics from the University of London, and a Ph.D. in criminology and urban policy from the University of Pennsylvania. Esteemed guests, members, and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming to the stage Dr. Alan Curtis. Good afternoon. Well, thank you, Barbara, uh, for that introduction. Thank you, Dan, um, for all the organizing and for everyone at the City Club. Um, I spoke here 10 years ago. Um, a lot of the people here were probably, uh, what, in third grade then? <laughs> I'm glad to see uh, all these students um, because uh, it's important to pass the torch on to the next generation. Uh, I'd like to really begin with Bobby Kennedy and uh, just show a little under three minutes of what he said on April 5th, 1968. What has violence ever accomplished? What has it ever created? No martyr's cause has ever been stilled by an assassin's bullet. No wrongs have ever been righted by riots and civil disorders. A sniper is only a coward, not a hero. And an uncontrolled or uncontrollable mob is only the voice of madness not the voice of the people. Among free men, said Abraham Lincoln, there can be no successful appeal from the ballot to the bullet. And those who take such appeal are sure to lose their case and pay the cost. Violence breeds violence. Repression breeds retaliation. And only a cleansing of our whole society can remove this sickness from our souls. For there is another kind of violence, slower, 
but just as deadly destructive as the shot or the bomb in the night. This is the violence of institutions, indifference, inaction, and decay. This is the violence that afflicts the poor, that poisons relations between men because their skin has different colors. This is the slow destruction of a child by hunger and schools without books and homes without heat in the winter. This is the breaking of a man's spirit by denying him the chance to stand as a father and as a man amongst other men. But we can perhaps remember, if only for a time, that those who live with us are our brothers. And surely we can begin to work a little harder to bind up the wounds among us and to become in our hearts brothers and countrymen once again. Those words were part of a thread that linked Senator Kennedy to Dr. Martin Luther King to the City Club of Cleveland. As you well know, America in the 1960s experienced what people of color called protests and what white called, whites called riots in Detroit and in Newark and in Cleveland and in my hometown of Milwaukee as well as 150 other cities around the nation. In response to that, President Lyndon Johnson formed the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, as Barbara described to you, called the Kerner Commission after its chair, Otto Kerner, who was then governor of Illinois. The Kerner Commission released its final report early in 1968. Dr. King and Senator Kennedy then endorsed that report very shortly after. A month after that, Dr. King was killed on April 4th, 1968. Uh, out on the presidential campaign trail and in Indianapolis that day, Senator Kennedy announced to the Indianapolis gathering that Dr. King had been assassinated. The very next day, Senator Kennedy presented here at the City Club. He was killed two months later in Los Angeles. And in November of 1968, the nation elected a law and order president who rejected the recommendations of the Kerner Commission. Although most of those Kerner Commission members were white men who wore the imprimatur of the political establishment, the original 1968 Kerner Report concluded that the nation had a long way to go in reducing poverty inequality and racial injustice, as Barbara also said. In, 19, in 2018, the Eisenhower Foundation published its 50-year uh, update, um, just as Robert Kennedy called uh, on this clip for a cleansing of American society and for binding up the nation's wounds, we titled our 50-year update, Healing Our Divided Society. Just as Robert Kennedy at the City Club, we have focused on the violence of our country's institutions, on our national indifference, and on America's inaction. With the National Advisory Panel that includes uh, people like civil rights icon Marion Wright Edelman and Nobel laureate Joseph Stiglitz, um, we concluded in our 50-year update that America still has a long way to go in reducing poverty, inequality, and racial injustice. But at least uh, we have built up much more evidence on what works and what doesn't work. And I'd like to share a little of that with you uh, this afternoon. Since the 1968 commission, we have twice elected an African-American president. There has been a dramatic increase in the number of African-American and Latino elected officials. The African-American and Latino middle classes have expanded. Recent films like The Hate You Give, Black Klansman, Black Panther, 
if Beale Street could talk, and hidden figures have, in their, all in their own ways, made positive and important cultural statements. Yet the realities that James Baldwin communicated to Robert, communicated to Robert Kennedy one night uh, many years ago in New York City continue to resonate today. Neo-Nazis have made their statements in Charlottesville and in many other places. Black Lives Matter has revealed what Americans did not want to see in Ferguson and in many other places. Zero tolerance policing against people of color has failed. Mass incarceration is the present iteration of slavery and Jim Crow. And I encourage you all to see Brian Stevenson's powerful new legacy museum in Montgomery, Alabama. Sentencing laws remain racially biased. About 200,000 people were in prison and jail in 1968. Today, thanks especially to the law and order rhetoric of the late 60s, to the crime legislation of the 1990s, to the crime legislation of the 1980s as well, the uh, number of people has risen from 200,000 to 2.2 million, and they are disproportionately people of color, so a tenfold increase. Yet reported homicide now is almost as high as it was when the Kerner Commission was writing its report 50 years ago. In many ways, mass incarceration also has become part of our housing policy for the poor. That housing policy has included conscious, purposeful, government-created segregation, as Richard Rothstein has eloquently described in his book, The Color of Law. Public school segregation has increased since the Kerner Commission, beginning with the backward-looking federal policies of the 1980s. Overall, child poverty has increased. Deep poverty, the poorest of the poor, has increased in part because of what the late journalist Molly Ivins has accurately called the welfare deform legislation of the 1990s. The ratio of African American to white unemployment has remained just about two to one over all 50 years since the Kerner Commission. Income inequality has increased. Wealth inequality has increased. Inequality was greatly accelerated by the supply side created Great Recession of 2008. Nobel Pro Laureate Paul Krugman and former Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke agree that the 2008 recession and the lack of regulation has, called, has caused serious and continuing damage that make our economy um, vulnerable still today. At the same time, the speed at which the rich have become, been pulling away from the rest of us has accelerated since the Kerner Commission. In the last 50 years, most of the economic gains from rising productivity have gone to the wealthiest 1% and to corporate profits. In the 1950s, cor top corporate CEOs made about 20 times as much as their workers. Today, they make over 300 times as much as their workers. Slaves, of course, were not allowed labor unions, and today corporate America has attacked unions, even though a majority of Americans favor unions. White corporate financiers brought us the Great Recession, yet they have not been punished. They have not been adjudicated into the prison industrial complex, which, as we all know, is a source of corporate profit. In comparison to all other industrialized democracies, America has the highest rates of incarceration, the highest rates of homicide, and the highest rates of overall child poverty. Yet none of this, I suggest, really has to be. To begin to reverse the betrayal of American democracy, we need to accelerate the movement to base policy on evidence, not ideology. Very few federal, state, and local public sector programs are evidence-based. All that money and so little evidence. 
Today, we need to turn back the present attack on the very idea of knowledge. We need to turn back the attack on the institutions that help discover and assess the truth. What are a few examples then of policy that does work? I'd like to share some with you. The Kerner Commission began with economic and uh, education policies. Uh, that means, I believe, that we need to begin with proven demand-side Keynesian economic policy that links job creation to job training and then to job placement. The job placement needs to focus on rebuilding the nation's crumbling infrastructure and on significantly expanding technologies to reverse climate change. The priority needs to be on investing in poor, working, and middle-class Americans, including workers in Lordstown here in Ohio, rather than on relinquishing still more power to the rich. The package of demand-side investments in average citizens needs to include a higher minimum wage, more power for labor unions, corporate profit sharing with workers, more vigorously enforced antitrust laws, trade policy that benefits workers, and health insurance for all Americans. Such demand-side policy can both stimulate growth and reduce inequality. As Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, author Stephen Perlstein has reminded us, reducing inequality won't make us poor. The Scandinavian countries, for example, have much lower inequality than, in, than America, but per capita income that is about the same. In the words of Nobel laureate Joseph Stiglitz, progressive capitalism is not an oxymoron. What does evidence-based policy mean in education? We need housing and therefore school integration combined with much more equitable financing of public schools, greatly improved training of public school teachers, and expansion of community schools. The state of Connecticut provides an excellent model for replication. Not surprisingly, careful evaluations have shown significant education and economic gains among children whose families have moved from neighborhoods which had bad schools and high poverty to neighborhoods with good schools and ample employment. That's just common sense. Montgomery County, uh, Maryland is one of the many uh, models that illustrate how we can successfully uh, undertake residential integration and those models need to be scaled up. It is essential that a return to public school integration incorporates new curricula that instill a strong sense of identity and pride in people of color so that they can function well in white space after graduation. What does evidence-based policy mean in criminal justice? Aware of the astronomical cost of prison building, states like California, New York, and New Jersey have reduced their prison populations by about 25% over recent years. Uh, with almost no really discernible influence, uh, uh, impact in terms of in increased crime. We need to accelerate such reductions across all states, and we also need to shut down modern-day debtor prisons. And we need to encourage the incipient movement to transform American prosecution into a system based on fairness, rather than to retain the status quo in which prosecutors advance their careers by being tough and by posturing on law and order. See Emily Bazelon's new book titled Charged. What evidence-based policy can, we, can be co-targeted to specific geographic locations with truly disadvantaged populations? In poor and working class neighborhoods across the nation, we need, first of all, more creative community policing. For example, we at the Foundation have assembled considerable evidence from locations as diverse as Puerto Rico, uh, New Hampshire, uh, South Carolina, and San Francisco uh, that indigenous community-based organizations can partner with carefully selected police officers to mentor youth, reduce crime, reduce fear, and increase trust in the neighborhoods. The data are there. 
Such innovative community policing needs to be deployed to help stabilize neighborhoods and so encourage the kind of community-based banking that was so successful before the regressive federal policies of the 1980s. Uh, the Shore Bank experience in Chicago remains a prime example of success. The community-based banking needs to encourage community economic development corporations like Bed-Stuy and the Bronx and others supported by Robert Kennedy to construct affordable and integrated housing. The housing construction should create jobs uh, for residents in the neighborhood um, and as well for ex-offenders uh, who are returning to the neighborhood uh, based on uh, evidence-based models like the Minnesota Comprehensive Reentry Plan. The jobs should be framed as youth development initiatives. The youth development should scale up national evidence-based models like Youth Build and Quantum Opportunities. Such models extend mentoring, tutoring, life skills training to high school dropouts and youth at risk of dropping out. Mentoring should be continuous from high school middle school, elementary school, and um, all eligible children uh, should uh, most definitely receive preschools. preschool. In other words, um, evidence-based, place-based policy that works targets multiple solutions to multiple problems. Evidence-based policy is complementary and interdependent. It is not separate and unequal. The scaling up of what works needs to be financed in part by the scaling down of what doesn't work. What doesn't work includes trickle-down, supply-side tax breaks for the rich, racist and massively expensive prison building for the poor, zero-tolerance policing, supply-side school vouchers and privatization of schools, and the failed welfare legislation of the 1990s. In response to the failure of trickle-down supply-side economics, we need to return to the Eisenhower administration's policy way back in the 1950s, before, before your time, uh, when top income tax rates on the rich were 70 to 80 percent, twice as high as they are now. We need to acknowledge the recent Fox News poll that found 70 percent of Americans favor raising taxes on the rich. So, Thanks to Fox News. <laughs> it, is, it is unacceptable and disgraceful that corporations like Amazon, Delta, Chevron, First Energy, and Goodyear paid no taxes in 2018. And General Motors paid no taxes while it closed its Lordstown plant. What doesn't work also includes misleading and exaggerated rhetoric, words like voluntarism, empowerment, and self-sufficiency. What doesn't work includes global symposia at luxurious resorts and Silicon Valley boardrooms where so-called thought leaders talk down to us, avoid how to reduce inequality, avoid how to change fundamental power equations, and avoid how to reform the rules of the game. Instead, the current fashion is to recite ineffective corporate buzzwords like win-win, market-driven solutions, and social impact investing. Most of all, what doesn't work includes false 1980s rhetoric on government being the problem. In fact, the problem is dishonest government and corporate greed. The solution is good government in partnership with, among others, a well-managed and greatly expanded nonprofit sector. Through the scaling down of what doesn't work and the scaling up of what does work, an evidence-based Kerner strategy that sufficiently invests in human capital can significantly reduce poverty, inequality, and racial injustice. Yet, new evidence-based policy cannot emerge without the new will that the original Kerner Commission said was necessary for progress. What is the use of evidence in our presently threatened democracy if there is no will to take action? Fifty years after the Kerner Commission, the creation of new will may be harder to achieve than ever. 
but we must begin. We are back to George Bernard Shaw. Some see things as they are and ask why. We must dream of things that never were and ask why not. In that devastating year of 1968, Dr. King and Senator Kennedy asked why not. As they both endorsed the Kerner Commission, they both were advocating a multiracial coalition for economic justice among the poor, the working class, and the middle class. And then they were assassinated. The creation of that King and Kennedy Economic Justice Coalition, which embraced the civil rights movement, needs to be the point of departure for the generation of new will today. North Carolina Bishop William Barber's National Poor People's Campaign Against the Immorality of Poverty and Inequality can help lead the way. But his moral campaign against poverty needs to be joined by many, many other constituencies. And we must find a way to coordinate the advocacy. Those corner constituencies include Americans who reject the culture of inward-looking selfishness begun in the 1980s and who instead ask what they can do for their country. Those Kerner constituencies include Americans who reject the selfish admonition that you're on your own and who instead recognize that we're in this together. Those Kerner constituencies include most of the 99% of us who have suffered the inequality and greed of Wall Street. Those constituencies potentially include the 18 million white Americans who live in poverty. Why are they not voting for Kerner priorities? Those constituencies include a women's movement in which differences between women of color and white women are resolved. Those constituencies include the majority of Americans who either want to keep immigration levels the same or to increase immigration levels. Those constituencies include teachers who have walked out of schools demanding higher salaries and new textbooks. Those constituencies include the leaders of newly emerging initiatives to integrate public schools beginning uh, in New York City. Those constituencies include the high school students from Parkland, Florida, who, now motivated by the Prime Minister of New Zealand, have impressively led the Never Again movement against gun violence and who have begun to partner with Sandy Hook Promise, the Brady Campaign, and the Gifford Center. Those constituencies finally include citizens on the right and on the left who, like members of the original Kerner Commission in 1968, must not give up on trying to find common ground. For example, with issues like infrastructure repair, expanded preschool, genuine community policing, de-incarceration, place-based multiple solutions based on Kerner priorities. Crucially, the generation of new will must be facilitated by the creation of a fair, more responsive American democracy. If the votes of all Americans were actually given equal weight, a new economic justice movement would have a better chance of reducing poverty inequality, and racial injustice. That is why we must intensify the fight for campaign finance reform, intensify the fight for voting rights reform, intensify the fight to abolish the Electoral College, and intensify the fight to ban gerrymandering in places like Ohio's 4th Congressional Duck District. Equally important, the generation of new will must be facilitated by media reform. In addition to hiring people of color and to including much more coverage of what works, the media need to more honestly recognize that the real story is, in fact, dog bites man. That is, the real story is continuing, grinding, commonplace, everyday poverty, inequality, and racial injustice. We need as well to regulate big tech companies like we regulate public utilities. As part of that regulation, we must take action against digital information and against social media 
feedback loops that push addicted users deeper and deeper into their own hermetically sealed bubbles. To a considerable, considerable extent, the movement for new will and for a new economic justice alliance needs to emerge at the grassroots, outside of government. But legislation and funding must build on good government at the local, state, and federal levels. It is fashionable to advocate for what some call the new localism, and we must encourage it, especially while our society remains so very divided today. Here in Cleveland, I challenge government and nonprofit organizations to catalyze local place-based policy that links community policing to community banking to community housing construction that's integrated to the creation of jobs for people in the community and for returning ex-offenders. In so doing, you can uh, really demonstrate to the rest of the nation how evidence-based multiple solutions complement one another and how the policy whole can be greater than the sum of its parts. At the same time, we cannot give up on good federal government, however long it may take to return. Good government and Franklin Roosevelt legislated the National Labor Relations Act, Social Security, and the bloodless revolution of the New Deal. Good government and Dwight Eisenhower created the interstate highway system. Good government and Barack Obama brought us the Affordable Health Care Act. Good government and Lyndon Johnson secured the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, and the Fair Housing Act. Good government now must invest in current priorities at a scale equal to the dimensions of the problem. As we approach the 2020 election, where Ohio will again play a pivotal role, of course, I challenge the City Club to dialogue with primary and general election candidates on good government and current priorities. In a nonpartisan way, the citizens of Cleveland need to ask all candidates why overall child poverty deep poverty, income inequality, wealth inequality, mass incarceration, and public school segregation all have increased over the last 50 years. What will the candidates do about that? Ask them. The citizens of Cleveland need to ask why so little policy is based on evidence and so much policy is based on ideology. What will candidates do about that? Ask them. And the citizens and leadership of Cleveland need to ask all candidates how they can create new will to heal our divided society. As I said to the City Club 10 years ago, that healing must never forget how the dream has been deferred. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up? like a raisin in the sun, or fester like a sore, and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat, or sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Perhaps that dream just sags like a heavy load. Or my friends, does it just explode? Thank you. Yes, yes, you're going to remain because we're going to end the questions. Today we are listening to a forum with Dr. Alan Curtis, President and CEO of the Eisenhower Foundation. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, or those of you joining us via our live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club, and our staff will try to work it into the program. Holding the microphones today, our content coordinator, Bliss Davis, and 
Uh, Stephanie Jansky, um, may we have the first question, please? Over here. And there'll be no follow-up question. <laughs> I am touched, as I think others are in the room, not only by your passion, but by the persistence with which you have manifestly given it voice. And yet, I fear you may not have attended as much as I think you should to the need to help people pick a narrow focus for their efforts. If you advocate for too much, then it becomes a blur. My particular focus in the social justice realm is on early childhood development. And I have been excited at the rise in belief in the value of pre-kindergarten education. So of all the things that I think could make a long-term difference in fighting poverty and helping people succeed, I know of nothing more important than that. So that's my particular pick out of all the possible things to focus on. But I ask you, do you find that a compelling one or do you have something else that you would advocate? I find that a compelling one as uh, we led with economic and uh, uh, education policy, uh, pre preschool and uh, Head Start and uh, various uh, uh, initiatives for two, three, four, five-year-olds uh, is, is central. I would, I'm glad this is all on the record because I'm not trying to go around the country with my colleagues and top down uh, what we think is best. We really are listening to the people. We're, I'm, we're doing over 60 of these forums around, around the country. So we, we need your views. And I, I, I couldn't agree more with you that preschool is really a foundation for the kinds of reforms that are consistent with the Kerner Commission and are really very much necessary today. Uh, Good afternoon. My name is Nancy, and um, great presentation. I just want to ask a question. For years, I've wondered why we've never done something like a Marshall Plan for the inner cities, and I wanted to know your thoughts about organizing the best and brightest minds around coming together with a big strategic plan and maybe take one city that's stressed out, Cleveland, Detroit, whatever, and then get the business community and everybody, all stakeholders together to say, how can we collectively put together a plan, fund it, measure it, and see what could happen in one particular city versus everybody in silos and Cleveland, there's all sorts of initiatives going on, but where's the overarching strategic plan to say here is collectively what we want to do to lift all of the people up in those cities? Well, you're absolutely right. There is no overarching plan. And that's why I, I at least mentioned that we, we need to coordinate all these different constituencies because they're, they're all working in the, the same general direction. So uh, we would be happy to, to work with you. Again, we want to hear from what, what uh, people uh, in, in uh, the various uh, assemblies we have uh, want to do locally. So if, let's talk afterwards. I'll give you my card. Let's, let, if we can try to assemble something in in Cleveland, uh, by, by, all, by all means. Uh, I was recently in Memphis at the National Civil Rights Museum, and I, I said the same kind of thing uh, there uh, uh, for uh, the people of, of uh, Memphis. And if, if different cities can uh, combine, uh, then we'll have models for the rest of the country. Also, there's a the great new police chief in Seattle, uh, Afri first African-American woman police chief, who I think uh, Will, will help us with getting community policing tied in with community economic development. So please talk with me. Thank you for that uh, really evocative speech, um, Professor. Could you talk a little bit about Brown v. Board of Education 65 years ago? I think they said in all due haste we should desegregate schools, but it seems as if we've almost been going in the opposite direction. And maybe in your remarks, uh, talk a little bit about busing and what happened to that experiment in achieving school integration, late 60s, early 70s. Yeah, well, uh, I'm going to be speaking in 
Topeka uh, uh, later and uh, in, in, in this year. And we're, get, we're going to get into that. You, you perhaps more know about, more about the answer to your question than, than I do. Uh, all I know is that um, after the Kerner Commission, for about 10 years or so, we made really great progress in uh, school, seg school desegregation. And then that all got reversed uh, in, in the 80s through a combination of court decisions and, uh, and federal policy. So that's a, that was a long-lasting strategy to reverse a very positive trend. And to be able to, to get back to where we, we should be is going to be extremely difficult, especially given the composition of the Supreme Court today. Um, perhaps we could talk more after that, and I can invite you to come to Topeka, and you can ask that question there, because uh, folks uh, really have that on their minds. Well, Dr. Curtis, your research, uh, the commissioners, commission's research has been um, pretty depressing, um, <laughs> albeit not thank, surprising. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, although there have been a few glimmers of light along the way. But now going back 50 years and looking at the country's culture and leadership then, and looking at it now, do you see any substantive change in leadership at the state, city, national level, or grassroots engagement that give you any hope that change is possible, that the commission's um, recommendations are actually going to be implemented, or is somebody going to be here 50 years later, 50 years from now, having the same conversation? My sense is that, I won't go 50 years from now, but 25 years from now, my, my sense is that at the 75th anniversary of the Kerner Commission, if, if Dan, uh, who will then be 50 years old, uh, <laughs> uh, wants to invite me back, uh, we, we'll, have the, we'll have the same discussions. Um, there were leaders, uh, President Johnson's programs uh, were going in the right direction in terms of my uh, values, but he, he got off track because of, of, of the war. Uh, there have been some presidents in recent years who I think have made uh, some progress, but frankly, I don't see these issues being discussed now by the people who will be running for president in the general election. So I, I'm, not, I'm not that optimistic right now, but what can we all do? What can you all do? Uh, we, can, we can become sheep farmers in New Zealand, uh, or we can, we can fight the good fight. We can push the rock uphill or use any metaphor you, you want. I, I think we have to especially pass the baton on to, to the, these young people here and, and to let them know that um, there is uh, a continuity in terms of discussing what happened, the existence of evidence now, the need to scale it up, and the need to create new will. Uh, the Harvard Kennedy School is going to be uh, working with us to bring emerging leaders to Cambridge to uh, have um, training in advocacy and organization uh, focused just on this. Uh, Kerner update and on uh, the need for reducing poverty uh, and inequality. So um, I wish I could give you some brilliant answer. I, I do have a, a couple of candidates who I, I think are, are more willing uh, as we head towards 2020 to, uh, to go in a Kerner direction than others. I, I, won't, I won't discuss them because this is no, um, a nonpartisan uh, event. <laughs> Yo, Bernie. Um, so, do you have any answers to your question, though? Because again, I, I don't claim to be to have the knowledge. It really helps if those of you who ask questions uh, to me can be patient with my non-answers often, and to and to and to suggest what you think are the right answers, because we. This all is being documented, and we're going to move forward with all the ideas that we get from all of these forums. So again, I apologize for not having some brilliant candidate who's going to 
take us to the promised land uh, by 2020. Hello, Professor. Alan. Alan, thank you so much for your excellent, inspiring speech and very informational. My name is Adele DeMarco, and I'm here with my dear friend and partner in good, Erica Merritt. And the two of us have been co-creating and co-leading leadership development on racial mm. equity here in mm. Cleveland for the past eight years. One of the primary frameworks we use is involves systems and inviting people to think on a systems level, individual, interpersonal, group, organizational, and structural so that we can actually analyze the dynamics that systems of oppression are playing. My question is, given how much evidence you've shared, I'm curious if there's been any inquiry or research on what supports systems thinking on the individual and group level because we have found that that's an essential requirement or capacity to actually be able to understand and address the complexity of what white supremacy and racism does to our country? And if so, do you have any excellent evidence <laughs> or case studies of what has really supported the growth and the building of capacity to be able to be a systems thinker and understand the dynamics at hand? Wow, that's a pretty serious question. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't have, a, again, I don't have a, a, a great answer for you, but there are, social equity is becoming an important phrase, and there, there are a lot of people starting to think about it, and in that sense, I commend the two of you and your organization for, for pursuing it. Uh, we, uh, we, we need to think that through, uh, and we need to think through how to go from evidence to action. That's, it seems to me, the, um, the, perhaps the, the biggest um, how-to issue. And, and, and one element of that is I don't think our universities are doing the job they, they should. Um, and we could perhaps talk about that later. I mean, there, there are, uh, as we were talking bef beforehand, Dan and Barbara and I, um, there are uh, good, good schools that teach how to make money and good schools how to do law. But the how-tos for uh, doing this stuff and how they're taught, I, I think, uh, need, need to be examined. Um, I think we need new degrees for students who come up to me afterwards sometime and say, I, I, really, I, I really would like to do something, but I don't know how I can be credentialed uh, and how I can get out there. And it's not just learning the, uh, the policy in education and economics and housing and mass incarceration reversal, but it's learning the rules of evidence. But then it's learning how to communicate what works, which might be something that you, you might want to think about. Uh, there's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania who uh, is part of the, the March for Science in, in 2017, and uh, he uh, He's fighting those who uh, are against vaccination. And uh, he, he, he's a professor of immunology, so he knows what he's talking about, but he found he was very inarticulate in speaking out and persuading the general public. So uh, he, uh, he went on television, Morning Joe and different talk shows, and found he was r really inarticulate. And uh, he was even laughed at by the, the crew in the television studio. And, but he learned. And, uh, it, it leads me to say that you can't just know the, the policy stuff. You've got to know how to, to communicate that uh, out uh, with, uh, uh, with the people who, uh, who are the people who are American citizens and uh, not at any university. Uh, I, I would encourage us to talk because we are linked with other social equity people who are asking the same questions who can uh, probably provide better answers than I can. Yes, sir. Um, it really bothers me, you mentioned it in your speech, the immigrant bashing lately. Do you have any ideas on what we can do to counter that, except for continuing to write articles uh, showing evidence that this is not so? No, no I don't. Um, um, 
again, I, just as some of these other issues, I, can, I could get you in touch with, with other people who, who would have better ideas. Uh, all I know is that I'm Polish-American, and my Polish busha came from Przedesz, a little vi village in western Poland, when she was 15. So she was an illegal immigrant. Somehow she got from Przedesz to New York, from New York to Chicago, from Chicago to Milwaukee. And she raised four kids uh, during the Great De Depression. Uh, we're a nation of immigrants, and this whole debate seems to me so ridiculous in, in terms of the need for us to have a balanced policy. Um, how, to, how to do that, how to bring some sanity to uh, the present politicking, uh, I, I just don't know. But I agree with you, we, we have to come up with a strategy. Really, let's talk afterwards so uh, I, I can maybe get you in touch with some people who can uh, uh, give you some uh, ways to go on that. Sir, for, thank you, sir, for a very interesting and sobering report. Um, so that we're not here and inviting you back 50 years from now to uh, see whether we've made any progress. Let's say a group of us here in the club uh, went and as a delegation to Brother Molthorpe and said the city club must do something about it. As far as maybe, a, and I'm asking you how best we could do it. For example, a series of speakers to address various aspects, the poverty side, the police situation, the housing, that you, all the issues you raised, or maybe a panel uh, of different people. But what would be your recommendation to us for this club of this, uh, this history and uh, to most effectively do, uh, strike at the issues that haven't been handled uh, on the current report? What can we do to be more effective in getting addressing your issues you've raised? No, I, I, I think you already answered the question. Uh, if you could assemble all the, the players from the, these, these different uh, parts of policy uh, and try to get them to talk to one another, that, that would be huge. And what better institution than, than the City Club for, for doing that? Um, I spoke before the Major City Police Chiefs Association uh, right after the president. Uh, uh, a few months ago. I was talking to Dan and Barbara about that. And uh, it was, I think, well-received. Uh, not entirely sure, but we want to follow up by trying to get progressive police chiefs in dialogue with Black Lives Matter. There is no dialogue right now between those two groups. Uh, we, we have pretty good credentials in terms of the community policing work we've done, and we have good credentials with indigenous nonprofit organizations. So we're well, well placed at least to give it a try. Well, that, that's exactly what the city club's position is. I mean, you have the respect and the credibility. Bring those teachers and those corporate people and those nonprofit organizations and people uh, lobbying for de-incarceration together. Um, but then you need someone who, who says, okay, we've talked, but we need a plan for action. That, that's where everything is, is breaking down. I talk around the country and people agree that uh, there have been these negative trends and they, they often say, yeah, there's, there's evidence on this and this and this and this. But then, then when I say, well, how in your community can you generate the new will to convert what you know to action? Then there's usually silence. And it's, it's actually quite frightening as I go around the country because it, it doesn't matter what group, and I go to different groups uh, in terms of race and in terms of class and, and, and any other way you want to break things down. Uh, I, I, I think we, we've got to bring them together. Or as I said, at least we have to try. We'll work with you on it too. Hi, thank you so much for such an informative speech. Something that really stuck with me was the way you talked about the harm of politicians' law and order um, narrative. So can you elaborate on how you think politicians' rhetoric is actually affecting the problem you talked about today? Is actually affecting 
all the yeah the issues you just talked about today like their rhetoric what the effect is well the the best example that I was giving is uh, mass incarceration interestingly the Kerner Commission didn't talk about mass incarceration didn't talk about incarceration it kind of assumed that uh, things would go along as they were and as, as I said there were 200,000 people in prison or jail in 1968. And then uh, the president who won in November of 68 ran on a law and order ticket uh, that was also a war on drugs. But that was, that was a really racist policy. And the result was legislation that started to increase sentences. And that related to disparities in sentencing. Uh, people of color use uh, crack cocaine. People, white people use powder cocaine. Dispar sentencing disparities uh, resulted in uh, white kids getting their hands slapped uh, and uh, African-American kids getting very serious punishment. Uh, that evolved more into, uh, especially the 1990s, when crime was shooting up. And so we had very harsh crime legislation in the middle of the 1990s that really kicked, kicked things off. So there were at least three presidents uh, who took the notion of law and order and converted it in, into not 200,000 in prison and jail, but 2.2 million in prison and jail. And now there's a lot of rhetoric about reversing that, but it's still just rhetoric. There, there was re recent legislation passed that, that sort of uh, kowtowed a bit to uh, the reformers who wanted to uh, reduce prison uh, uh, populations like New York and California and, and New Jersey, but uh, very, very little action so far. Th that's the law and order thing is uh, is the best example. But the law, the the, the crime thing, then is a f relates to everything else because neighborhoods are full of crime, or at least people fear f fear that they are. That prevents community-based banking and community-based economic development, and so that prevents the creation of jobs for ex-offenders who are returning from prison. So it's all then getting back to multiple solutions to multiple problems. Thank you. you can stay up here if you like or go down to your seat, whatever you'd like to do. Okay. Today at the City Club, we have been listening to a forum with Dr. Alan Curtis, President and CEO of the Eisenhower Foundation. Dr. Curtis appears as part of our Authors in Conversation series, supported in part by the residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from the Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. We are grateful to all of the residents of Cuyahoga County for their support through that public grant. The community partner for today's forum is the Social Justice Institute at Case Western Reserve University. Our hospitality partner is the Metropolitan at the Nine Hotel. We appreciate your partnership. Additionally, we welcome students from Citizens Leadership Academy, Flow Homeschool Co-op, and Hawkins School, as well as the student winners of the Hope and Stanley Adelstein Free Speech Essay Contest, sponsored by McDonald Hopkins. Support for student participation in the City Club forums from KeyBank and the William M. Weiss Foundation with additional support from the donors you'll find listed in today's program. Will all of our students please stand? Thank you. We thank all of you for being here today. The sale of Dr. Curtis's book, Healing Our Divided Society, Investing in America, 50 years after the Kerner Report is provided by a cultural exchange. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Dr. Curtis. 
Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.